Um, let me ask a big philosophical question to get us started today. Uh, should we expect the world to be getting better or getting worse? Better. We got it better over here. Um, it's, it, it's, it, I, yeah, I hope it is getting better. Um, but let's talk about it for just a minute. On the one hand, we should think that. I mean, we should be encouraged. Uh, for instance, I was um, doing a little digging this week, and I found out that world poverty, I didn't know this, but world poverty has rapidly declined. Um, the World Bank uh, suggests that if someone makes less than a dollar and 90 cents a day, that they are living in poverty. And the number of people living in poverty in 1990 was 1.9 billion people on the planet. Today, or in 2015... Fast forward 25 years, the number decreased by two-thirds almost. 736 million people were living in poverty. Like why, why don't we know this? I, said, I think it says something about the news cycle, doesn't it? That bad news gets more clicks than the good news? But that's a rapid decline. That's encouraging. Seems like the world's getting better. In 1900, 54.3% of people on earth were part of what missiologists refer to as an unreached people group. An unreached people group is an ethnic group without an indigenous, self-propagating Christian church movement. So in 1900, 54.3% of all peoples on earth were a part of an unreached people group. Well, that number today is 28.8%. That's encouraging, isn't it? Nearly cut in half. But do those two facts mean that the world is getting better? Some would say yes, but I would be a bit more cautious. Let me tell you a story of a German pastor named Helmut Thielicke. Helmut Thielicke was a pastor around World War II. And right after the war, he was preaching in a church that had undergone significant destruction from the war that had taken place in Hamburg. And in the sermon, he criticized the idea that the world was becoming more and more Christian until finally the kingdom of God would come on earth. Here's what he said. Such dreams are delusions. They vanish amidst the terrors of our man-made misery. Who can still believe today that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, and in the life of the individual? The earth has been plowed too deep by the trenches of war. The streams of blood and tears have swollen all too terribly. Injustice has become all too cruel and obvious for us to consider such dreams to be anything but bubbles and froth. Now, it's easy for Tilika to say this, right? I mean, he had witnessed the horrors of war that had destroyed any delusion that humanity was making moral progress. And it was tempting for him, for Germans in those days, to wonder whether God's kingdom would ever come. Now you and I, we might not be facing war on the scale that Tilika did. But there's plenty going on around us to make us lose hope in the idea of progress. Just in our own community. Drug overdoses keep rising. Suicide is rampant. Mass shootings persist. The division we face in our culture is at every turn and is tearing our society in halves. The state of the American church is at an all-time low with over half of our country claiming to be nuns 
not like Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E-S nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And maybe when you look inward, when you look at your own life, you see that you are in decline, or seem to be. You have an addiction you can't kick. You have a depression that won't leave. You have anxiety that sits on your chest. You have friends and family who don't give a rip about the gospel. And you too ask the question, will the kingdom ever come? Well, that's why we're going to look at our text today. Our text is Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. If you're a note taker, you're going to love today. Five characteristics of the kingdom of God that we're going to be able to pull out of these two parables. And the first one is that the kingdom of God starts small. Now, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, you know it's extremely small. In fact, you can barely see it. My eyesight's so bad without glasses, I don't think I could see it. It's just one millimeter in width. It's one of, if not the smallest seed that Jesus' hearers would have ever encountered. Then you look at the yeast. Yeast is just a powder. And Jesus says that a woman had three measures of flour. Well, that's enough dough to make bread for 150 people. And the amount of yeast that it would take to make bread for 150 people is no more than just a pinch of that yeast powder. So Jesus is saying with both of these parables that the kingdom of God starts small. Now, it makes sense that the kingdom of God starts small when you think about the spread of the church. Jesus, when he rose again from the dead, he didn't rise into a big crowd of people. In fact, he just rose from the dead to a few women who then told a few disciples. And in just a few hundred years, Christianity had overrun the entire civilized world. And by the beginning of the third century, there were thriving churches in every province of the Roman Empire. So it makes sense. The kingdom of God starts small, just to a few women, just to a few disciples. But Jesus' life himself seemed pretty small and insignificant, doesn't it? I mean, he was conceived out of wedlock. He was born in a nowhere town. He was born into poverty. He lives at home with his parents for 30 years and runs the family business small. Now, yeah, he does have this rapid ascension in his public ministry, but then he dies the death of a criminal. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. His followers at the end were few in number and feeble in faith. And most of them even run away when he gets killed. A small life. The church has small beginnings. But we struggle with small, don't we? I mean, we live in a world that idolizes size. Big bank accounts, big social media followings, big gas stations. Buckies. Big houses. And often we really do believe at our core that bigger is better. 
Yet this in many ways is anti-kingdom of God thinking. Jesus is not necessarily always for big. Small things matter in his economy. Things like yeast. Things like mustard seeds. The second thing we see about the kingdom of God is that it's hidden. I mean, think about a seed. Once it's planted into the ground, it's entirely hidden from view. Maybe if you just started a garden, you know this up close and personal. This is the time of year. It's right before things start popping out of the ground. Or think about yeast. Once it's mixed into the dough, you can't see it anymore. So it'd be really easy to make the judgment that the seed isn't growing or the yeast isn't working just because it's not visible. But that would be a grave error, wouldn't it? The seed is working beneath the ground as it is sending out roots that you can't see in order to suck in resources to help it grow above the soil. Think about yeast. Even though it's mixed into all the dough, it's doing its work to make the dough rise. See, growth happens in unseen places in the kingdom. It happens on the streets as Christians just quietly show mercy to those on the margins. It happens as Christians pray in private. It happens as Christians take in foster children and adopt children. It happens in people's hearts. It happens like seeds and yeast. That it's hidden for a time in order for it to work. It's on the inside. And when changes in hearts happen, it means that people's motivations change. When motivations change, then real external behavioral change can happen. But usually, our tendency is, when we can't see it, we think it's not there. We don't have any faith because we don't see anything happening. And so we just chuck the process when we don't get the results we want. We want to grow at light speed. We don't want to have a season of hiddenness. But here's the reality. You can't microwave yourself or others into gospel maturity. you got to marinate. You got to slow roast in the truth before anything on the outside begins to happen. So, as you evaluate your own lives, you evaluate what, what's working here. You've got to exercise a patient trust. A patient trust as you become convinced that if you put biblical truth, dependence on the Holy Spirit, and community into the buckets of your life and you stir it up, growth is going to happen. Yes, there will be a season of hiddenness. There might be multiple seasons of hiddenness as you grow. And your growth will be imperceptible to you. But take cheer. This is the way of the kingdom. So it's small. It's hidden. Thirdly, it's gradual. See, that yeast takes time to make its way through the dough. The mustard seed eventually does grow into a bush-like tree that's 8 to 12 feet tall. And that takes years. See, the kingdom grows gradually. Now, that might seem counter to the way God works. I mean, think about it. We're talking about an omnipotent God. We're talking about the omnipotent God who spoke creation into existence with a mere word. It was quick. But God doesn't always work quickly. His plan of redemption 
has a very different timetable than ours would. Think about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery and he was in Potiphar's house for multiple years. Then he was a prisoner in Egypt for multiple years, perhaps even decades, before he ever ascends into power where he's able to save his people. It took a long time. He had a slow roast. He had to marinate. Think about Israel. As they're wandering around in the desert for 400 years. They had to slow roast. They had to marinate. Think about Jesus. His public ministry lasted three years. His private life lasted 30. Why? He had to slow roast. He had to marinate. It was gradual. So even though it's slow, even though it's gradual, there's great power in the gospel. Think about these seeds. Think about the yeast. They don't explode. They ooze. It's an organic energy. It's not a chemical eruption. And it's tempting to think that the God who creates quickly, he might lead us through a trial with great haste, that our suffering won't last very long. It might be tempting to think that he's going to fast track your sanctification. But God tends to work slowly in your life. He also seems to work slowly in our church. See, there's just no guarantees our church is going to explode. In fact, if it does grow that way, I, I, I think it actually might not be a good thing. But it should ooze. So we're just going to keep praying. We're going to keep plodding. The seed's going to grow. The leaven's going to have its way in our lives and in the community. So you see the kingdom. The kingdom is small. The kingdom is hidden. The kingdom is gradual. The kingdom is pervasive. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in, is in the word? Power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And that kingdom of God lives inside you. Meaning it's going to do something inexplicable in your life. See, the kingdom of God is more than a set of ideas. It's more than a morality to follow. It's more than a sociological ideology. It's more than just forgiveness. The gospel is a power. And when it gets into your life, it begins to take over. If you've ever been to, to my house, when we bought our house seven years ago, we had two of the biggest magnolia trees you'll see in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, if you go further south, you'll see bigger ones. But in Lexington, we had two huge magnolia trees. A couple years ago, we cut down one. Last week, we cut down the other. It was 30, maybe 40, 50 feet tall. I, I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to do that. But it was big enough that it provided tons and tons of shade over our whole house and our neighbor's. Well, the crazy thing that I didn't get to see when we cut down the first one is I got to see the process of the stump grinder. Now, it's pretty cool to see these dudes climbing up in the tree and putting that thing through the wood chippers. Pretty crazy. But what's crazier is that stump grinder. This guy had this, it was like a small, it was like a Civic in my front yard with this stump grinder. And it had this big blade on it. And he wasn't riding it. He had a remote control around his neck working this stump grinder. Because he can see the blade at ground level. He's looking at it from over here and he's grinding this piece of the stump. He's grinding this root. And those roots went out 
over the whole half of my front yard. So now it's just a bare spot. Well, then, Jen and I, we don't want it to be bare. The other spot had been bare for a long time. because We were just hoping this other tree would make it. It didn't. And when we started tilling that up, because we had to add some compost to it so we could put landscaping in there, and the landscape might actually work because it's got good soil to work with. Well, even though that massive civic in my front yard with a, with a huge blade on it, it got a lot of the, the, the roots out, but it didn't get all of them. And when we start tilling, we're hitting root after root after root after root. So you see, that tree pervaded my front yard. You couldn't see all of it. But his power was sprawling, pervasive, and expansive. And that's the way the kingdom grows, friends. It penetrates and permeates until its influence is total. God's not satisfied to have just one part of your life. He's got to have the whole thing. And so the Spirit does His kingdom work in your life, and His influence spreads to every part. Spreads to how you treat your body. Spreads to how you think. Spreads in such a way that you begin to second-guess your emotional reactions. It spreads in such a way that you begin to rethink your family relationships. You begin to rethink your friendships. You begin to rethink your career. You begin to interact with the news very differently because the kingdom of God's expanding in your life. See, the goal of God in your life is not just that you would have better Bible knowledge. If that were the case, Satan would crush us all in Bible monopoly. It's not about being the most woke person on your block. Got the most sensitive justice radar because this whole project can be one big self-righteousness project. It's not about, the kingdom of God is not about your life becoming easier and easier and that being an indication of God's reign in your life. No, your life's guaranteed some suffering. Here's the goal of the kingdom of God in your life. It's to make you like Jesus. What the kingdom of God wants to do is transform you into the embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus. Gentleness, Jesus. Faithfulness, Jesus. And that is what God is trying to spread in you. Pervasive. So small, hidden, gradual, pervasive. And the fifth one is blesses others. Didn't you love that text that Bessie read earlier from Ezekiel? I don't know if I've ever read that text before this week. And I think Jesus was pulling from that text. When he gives this parable. See, in that text, in Ezekiel, he talks about the birds of the air resting in the branches. You see, it makes sense because God's kingdom is indeed about rest. Now, you might up to this point think it's all about being a good soldier in the kingdom. and It's about work. But Jesus did say, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you. Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So as we grow, as the mustard seed grows, as the leaven makes its way into our lives, yes, we're going to enjoy the growth. But that growth is going to bless others. 
other people are beginning to seek haven in your life. See, you'll become a hospital that the wounded will come and find healing from the great physician. You'll become a confessional booth for sinners who can unload their sins and receive pardon from the great high priest. You'll become a diner for the hungry to come and eat the bread of life. You'll become a motel for the sufferer to come and rest. Because the kingdom of God blesses others. See, this Christian life, it ebbs, it flows, the work's small, it's hidden. It's so gradual that sometimes it seems utterly stagnant. But the life-transforming Spirit of God is still at work in your life. In fact, Jesus has not just guaranteed your growth, he's guaranteed your completion. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? About 15 years ago, I was, uh, I was flying an airplane. I hate airplanes. When you're six foot five, airplanes just aren't for you, unless you're willing to spend a lot more money than I am. Those big seats up there in the front. And I was on this flight, and um, we hit some major turbulence, the kind that makes you feel like you're on a bad roller coaster, you know? The kind that little kids are laughing at because they think it's fun, but I personally think it's hell. And part of the reason that I don't like turbulence is that my biggest fear in life is vomiting. Part of the reason I don't like turbulence is because I'm going to think I'm going to be flat as a pancake on the earth. Yet I just keep getting on planes. I don't fly a lot, maybe three or four times a year. And sometimes as I'm sitting there waiting for the plane to back up and take off, I get a little nervous. My doubts creep in. I'm just expecting the turbulence to come. And sometimes I hold that armrest, hopefully not my neighbor's thigh. And I hold on to it during the turbulence, thinking it's going to save me. See, my faith in the airplane at those moments, when there's turbulence, it's really weak. And I can't ever understand why the person next to me is not nervous. But here's the thing. Even though my faith is weak, and even though my neighbor's is strong, we both arrive at the same destination. Even though I wrestle with doubt and they don't, we're going to end up at the same spot. And the captains never come back to me and said, Marshall, I'm sorry. But because you doubt the soundness of this aircraft and because you doubt my flying capabilities, we're going to make an early landing and let you off in another city. You don't get to arrive at your destination because your faith is weak. No, 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 no. That doesn't happen. See, just as it's the power of the airplane, not the power of my faith, that gets me where I want to go, so the power of salvation lies in the strength of God, not in the strength or the growth in your faith. So if you're discouraged today, and you think the kingdom is losing, the world is getting worse and worse, and so is your life, let me encourage you to fix your eyes on a very strong Jesus. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to give up. He's going to persist, persist. And in the end, he's going to complete his project in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. 
Lord, forgive us that we doubt it. Lord, you have demonstrated it once and for all on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you and not on ourselves. Oh, Lord, we need your help in Christ's name. Amen.